All right, please turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. We're going to be finishing up our series here in the next few weeks. Someone asked me how many more weeks, and I said yes when I'm done. Um, I've, enjoyed, I've enjoyed the series. So we're on our fourth sermon this, uh, this week on the purpose of the church. What is the purpose of the church? And for the last few weeks, we have walked through various passages and covering the biblical purpose of the church, and this week we're going to continue to do that. I presented that I believe the biblical conclusion to the, this question, the purpose of the church, can be summed up really in this phrase. It is to build up the believer's faith for the work of ministry. Everything the church does, its primary focus and mission should be centered around building up the believer's faith for the work of ministry. So we spent three weeks doing that. This morning we are going to dissect a part of us that is extremely that is extremely intimate and private for many as it relates to this mission of the church. A part of us that we more than likely prefer to keep hidden and, and tucked away from the rest of the religious world. This is not something we necessarily want exposed. Not because it's wrong or sinful, but because we are not quite sure what are we are to do with this feeling that we have. This morning we are going to compare your personal reasons for why you participate in church or the lack thereof to what we find in scripture. Every person in this room relates to the church in a very unique way, meaning that it is personal. When people are not unified around a common truth, humanity naturally has a tendency of defining itself which in turn only causes, I think, fractions, pain, and long-term scars, which is most people's experience of the church. The most logical reason why this is the common outcome is that humanity is under the curse of sin. Sinful people acting according to their nature, this is the way I would put it, we tend to be selfish, hurtful, prideful, and manipulative people. Otherwise, prisons and marriage counseling would not exist. Your group, you group us together as humans, sinful humans, and we will not, it will not take long for us to use, abuse, and hurt each other. It's kind of our nature. Some might say, I have a very bleak outlook on humanity, and I would say I'm only rephrasing what the Bible has exposed to be true through humankind. This is why many people start the Old Testament and they end about three books in because it's so devastating to the human psyche of just how horrible humanity can be. When churches do not understand their, their biblical purpose and create cultures that really breed, in my experience, superficiality, hypocrisy, and judgmentalism, it is easy to see how most people are skeptical and even distant from the church. It's hard to believe this, but in, I've been in ministry almost 20 years, and I have seen various attitudes towards the church, towards, the, I would say, the local church, in my experience through uh, the three different states that I have pastored in. I'm just going to run through some of these attitudes just to see if there's something here that relates to you, and then we'll see how this is connected to Scripture a little bit later. But for many, there is a, and this is, I think, a little 
um, heavy, but there is definitely a, a hidden hatred toward the church often. The church has become that, that deep scar or wound as the result of many being abused or the abuses that they have experienced. Some of this is that constant bombardment of criticism. And often it's a criticism that comes with a smile or a pat on the back with brother or sister after it. But we understand what the dagger is. It's in our back. Or a wrong diagnosis which has only led to hurtful public humiliation. Often those who are hurting and need of help walk into the church and they are diagnosed to be in sin when really that is not the case. They're simply hurting and need help. Mistreatment of family and friends. They watch the church hurt the people that they love and care for. And most common, a lack of grace and respect toward others. The church can be very uh, graceless and mean to its own. So this hatred runs deep. But of course, how would you share this without sounding bitter or critical of the church? So you don't. What do you do with it? You suppress it. You press it way down and you keep it hidden. So they simply hide it away for it only festers and removes any joy that can be found in the church. And so the hatred of the church really robs any joy that can be found there. There's one that's similar to it. The second one that I've experienced is there are many who live in fear of the church, who live in fear as they attend church, fear of what the church would find out about them if they were to get too close into their life. Those who are in churches that promote kind of a self-discipline and tend to be legalistic do not create, in my opinion, true holiness. We're going to talk about holiness next week, but produces superficiality. You pretend to be what you're not. You, you don't want to be left out, and you definitely do not want to be judged, so you pretend. Therefore, every week you come fearful that someone's going to figure out you're fake, you're plastic. There's nothing beneath it. So we all pretend that our lives are put together. There is no struggle with pain or suffering. Only weak Christians or sinful Christians have that. You smile so everyone assumes you are a good Christian who is enjoying life. You're the loudest singer and you raise your hands the highest, right? But there never is any real conversations about sin, pain, suffering, failure, defeat, or even the fear itself. That's too dangerous. Because then we might be exposed for who we are, and then, of course, we'll be judged. The only conversations you have are about, how are you, how are you doing at accomplishing the spiritual lists that has been imposed upon you? There are even churches who provide a list, a weekly list of checking off how much time you've done what. A list that, in the end, never helps anyone and only allows some to boast, others to condemn, and most to live feeling like a failure. Now, I, wonder, I, I understand why so many live in fear of the church. Who wouldn't be afraid of people who like to judge, criticize, and compare? I hate those people. I don't like to be criticized. I don't know of anybody that does. I definitely don't like to be judged. And the only time I like to be compared is when someone's comparing with somebody that's worse than me. Sure, compare all you want. My back could always use a pat. Then there's the third one. I didn't, know, I didn't know if I was going to put this one in there, but I decided to anyways. There's the pessimist, right? This has nothing to do with your experience of church. It's more just kind of your outlook on life. It's hard for you to see the value in relationships or organizations. Your outlook is that we're all eventually going to let each other down, so why waste the time? I call these the Eeyores of the church. 
but I love them. They tend to speak their minds is why I love them. They tend to tell you exactly what they're thinking, no matter the consequence. I know where I, typically with the ewers of the church, I know where I stand with them. So we have a good relationship. The legalist. Oh man, the legalist. You see, church is an end to a means. It is how you will make yourself presentable to God. Church is how you confirm in your mind that you are at least better than the rest of the world. Because legalism is to perform actions to be accepted by God. So if you are performing the actions and the world is not performing those actions, you're now acceptable. There is absolutely little to no rest. Joy can only be found when you are performing well. And when you're not performing the list well, what ends up happening? There is a lack of assurance. There's a lack of joy. Or, as I've seen, you just adjust the list to make it more attainable. And grace is a hard concept for the legalist. It just seems unfair. You would much rather we speak on how people need to repent of their sins and act more holy than you would of God's grace and need of grace for them. Church is not family, but something to be used to accomplish your spiritual goals. And often people feel used in the legalistic context. And then lastly, some people just treat it like a genie. It's called the genie effect, right? Church is there to fix my problem. Many start coming to church to fix their marriage, to fix their kids, bad habits, hoping to create good habits. This is kind of the the genie in the bottle. You rub it enough, you get the proper outcome. But when the church can't fix something you spent a lifetime messing up, what do you do with church? Well, it's logical. Well, if one gym or one diet isn't working out or job, what do you do? Go get another one. And so church just becomes something that you go to until you find the right one. And over time, I think these people tend to be those who frequent churches on holidays and special occasions because just like a multi-level marketing scheme, it doesn't quite work for them at the moment. I'm not critical of these people. I'm compassionate towards them because I understand if that's how you see church and no one's exposed you to the glory of church, um, church just is painful. Now, I'm sure that most of us can find ourselves in one of these five, if not a combo of them. And these type of relationships toward the church are the result of not knowing, in my experience, the biblical role the church has as it relates to us personally. The, the role, the purpose of the church is, I think, been lost because we've lost a priority of the gospel, we've lost a priority of grace, and in doing so, you lose the priority of the people of grace. So this morning, my prayer is that we can begin to peel back some of these feelings that you have, that I have, and show that the grace, joy, and peace, and really healing that God has provided by the means of the family, or in other words, the means of the church. Now, we're only going to look at two parts this morning, and we're going to save the rest for next week. And these are the two parts we're going to look at this morning. What is our biblical identity in the church? How is it that we should identify ourselves compared to the five that we've seen? And what is our biblical responsibility in the church? So those are the two parts that we're going to look at from Scripture this morning. I think before we go into Romans, one of the greatest setbacks in the modern Christianity, and you've heard me mention this, but I want to say it again because it will help us, is what I call spiritual narcissism. 
Christianity is all about the personal relationship to God. Everything is between me and God, me and God. So how we mature in godliness is between me and God, and how we fight sin is between me and God, and how I pursue in righteousness is between me and God, and how I do ministry, you would think it's between you and the person you're ministering to. No, but it's so you can demonstrate to God the fruit of the Spirit, right? God, I am demonstrating to you that I am worthy of this calling that you've put upon me. All, all, all of this is connected to the personal efforts of discipline, this is why the, thing, the concept of spiritual disciplines or spiritual, uh, personal disciplines is confusing to me in a relationship that is supposed to be plural and yet it's singular. The church becomes that place where we receive the needed motivation to keep, it, keep at it while at home. We come here, get motivated, so when we go back out, we can continue to work on this relationship between me and God. So the church becomes that place where we get special counsel or accountability to handle our sin problems. When I can't do it on my own, as most of all of you have heard this, if you're having a problem with sin and you can't do it on your own, you need a what? Accountability partner who can make you feel guilty for when you fail. So what do you do? You lie. And you justify the lie because they just don't understand. Or you need a different accountability partner. If only the pastor, well, you don't want me to be your accountability partner. (laughs) Or lastly, the place where we get in our service points so we can feel better about ourselves. Purely narcissism. Our entire perspective on the Christian life is inward. It's, it's all about me, focusing on me, what I must do, how I must fix me, or the rewards I will receive if I perform well. Your identity, therefore, the way I would put this is, your identity, therefore, is that of an only child. It's just you and God. The church is but a program to help that relationship. That's how most of us view our relationship to the church. This is why you never really want to get personal with anyone else because of uh, about your spiritual walk because it's it's really up to you and not anyone else's business. It's personal. Churches are only is a priority based upon how you are doing at that moment or if you see it fulfilling the role of making things better in your life, but otherwise church is not necessarily needed. So in light of that, narcissism, what we call spiritual narcissism, or as I like to say, the only child syndrome, let's look real quick at Romans 12. Actually, before, turn with me to Romans 12. Hold your finger there. I'm going to read to you real quick 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Let me ask you this one question. Who owns you? Who owns you? Now, in modern context, we own we. (laughs) Me owns me. I own I. I'm, under, I, I'm, the, the, I'm the captain of my own fate, the captain of my own life. I am this only adopted child that's worried about me and my relationship to God. But that's not what we learn from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Well, it's very clear, and it's not a shocker to anyone in this room, that you are not owned. You don't own yourself. God owns you. This is why. We who were slaves 
Because of our sin, we're a slave to sin, as Paul said. So we didn't even own ourselves before God came along. We were a slave. There was a master over us. He rightfully judged us and condemned us and should have punished us. That's the relationship between us and God before our adoption. So we were a slave under sin. Instead of being punished, Jesus dies on the cross, taking our place for this punishment by using a very important concept called called purchasing your debt. Purchasing your debt. That which you owed God for your crime, Jesus paid for that in his own body. So what we owed was paid for by Christ. Now we belong to him because he purchased the debt. Not as a slave who must now serve a tyrant meeting unrealistic demands. That's not the relationship that we have. We are a slave. Paul calls himself the slave of God. But we now relate to him as brother and he calls us his bride. One he adores and loves. So it's a very unique relationship. But to be clear, we are not an only child because it is not just Jesus and me, as the song likes to say, or I come to the garden alone. That is not the concept. He says you've been purchased, adopted, and then what does he do? He transforms us in his kindness. He transforms us while remaining on this earth into a special family of other purchased sinners, of other adopted men and women. It is this family we have our identity in. God owns us and he, whole, and he has told us that he wishes in our new life to look like this. Now go to Romans chapter 12. So your identity as, a, as someone who's been purchased and paid for in this relationship that you have to God, God says, this is how you will participate in my relationship. This is your participation. Look at Romans 12.1. I'd appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Stop real quick. Just so you know, every time Paul calls for us to do something, he's always pointing back to the grace and mercy of God in our life. Number one motivation for obedience is the gospel. To present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does it mean to be acceptable in the eyes of God, according to Paul? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay? So what is acceptable? What is God's will? And what does this look like? Three. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another, which means you're not an only child. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us then use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith of service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He doesn't even take time to give an entire list. He's just giving you an idea of what it looks like to participate in a family. Everybody has their part. And then he says this, let love be genuine. 
Is he talking about the love between God and you? No, of course not. He's talking about within the body. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Going back to the beginning of the chapter, he says here that if we have been purchased by God and we are to live a sacrificial life holy and acceptable to God, that sacrificial life holy and acceptable is learning to live like a family. That's what he's saying. So how is it that we are to live acceptable before God? In the way in which we love and care for the church, the local church. Because Paul is not writing to the churches abroad. He's writing to the church at Rome. Real quick, turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 4. You're going to be all over this morning, so just have your fingers nimble. Ephesians chapter 4 says, I therefore, sorry, Ephesians 4.1, I'll give you a chance to get there. This relates to what does it mean to live an acceptable life before God? Your identity as a relationship to him. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So you've been called into relationship with God. He has adopted you with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. Okay, so first of all, the way that's acceptable related to your adoption has everything to do this direction, right? So he vertically adopted you and then commands you to express this in an acceptable manner out. But notice what he says in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called into one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Meaning... You are united with the rest of the family. Let me read to you this um, quote real quick by Edmund Clowney I found helpful. He said, The church, according to scripture, is not a religious club. A voluntary association of like-minded Christians who cultivate friendships and engage in joint projects. That sounds like the modern church, but that's not the biblical church. It is rather the institution of Christ and of the Spirit, formed by His power, and governed by His Word. I think it's a helpful observation. Jesus has brought us together in a supernatural bond that exceeds any relationship on this earth, including that of marriage. Because if, an, if someone who is an unbeliever becomes married, the supernatural connection that you have to the church is eternal compared to that which you have which is marital. Not to say that your marriage is not important, just to understand the connection. So you do not assess your spiritual health based upon your personal performance of some spiritual act. That's the fascinating part. If you're an only child, it's very easy. How am I doing in relationship to my one parent? But if you're looking at the health because of you being connected, Paul just said you are one with one spirit, with one body. So we are, to, we are called to look at our family and ask, how are we doing Because we are one. What kind of parent and husband would I be if I considered my life only 
based upon me and my performance, according to my outcome. Well, I'm happy, and all of my needs are being met, so life is good. Yet my kids never have interaction with me. My wife never sees my love for her in action, and it's obvious of their need of my time and affection. But I am not establishing how I'm doing in relationship to a family. I'm establishing how I'm doing in relationship to me. That's narcissism, right? We do the same thing within Christianity. It's called spiritual narcissism. The reason we disconnect our identity from our responsibility is because we have disconnected the Spirit's role in the life of the church. We assume the Spirit lives within us. He's doing His work. That's good enough. So we equate personal effort with personal spiritual growth. The more I put in, logically, the more I get out. So what is every sermon and book pushing you to? Greater and greater effort personally, right? Well, we're going to see here in a minute that's not the case. God has designed the family function, the church, to be that role. I've been saying this for many years now to the young adults. Some of you probably heard me say it already. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. Christian life was never intended to be lived alone, but yet that is how we're encouraged to do it. It's you and God and your efforts. You see, spiritual health is dependent upon the church whether you realize it or not according to Scripture. Now let's go back to the first part of our series. How is it that we grow spiritually according to what the Bible tells us? How is it that our faith grows? It's by the public preaching and teaching of God's word, right? So we listen corporately to God's word, and it's from there we build one another up into love and good works. We receive the Lord's table in baptism. That doesn't mean you come here and then leave. That's not what Paul is getting at. There's more to it. And let me show you this from Scripture. So this is what I want you to see from the relationship to the church. First of all, if you ha- turn with me to First Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 3. First, your role in the church's family, spiritual health. Believe it or not, when you are assessing your relationship as a body member, for instance, my fingers are very much interested in how my heart is doing. Why? Because they're connected to the heart. And my feet are very much connected to my eyes, and they're very concerned with what my eyes are doing. Why? Because my eyes tell my feet where they must go. But we don't think of ourselves in this way. We don't think of ourselves of the body needs me because I have an important part in the body as it relates to the walk with Christ. That command to walk by faith, we hear it individually. As a matter of fact, almost every single command in Scripture we hear individually for me. But yet, when written, it's written to a body of people who are supposed to be obeying it corporately. 1 Thessalonians 3. I found, uh, this is super helpful for me when I read this. Now, uh, 3.11. 1 Thessalonians 3.11. Now may our God and Father himself and Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Why is it that Peter wants their love to increase for each other? So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter understands what the affection of the church does for each other based upon what we've learned from Paul. So let's go back to Ephesians real quick. Ephesians chapter 4. 
The affections we demonstrate toward each other is what God uses to establish our hearts, as Peter says, to be blameless and holy before him. How is that? If you, step one, have a congregation, a family that is focusing on the preaching and teaching of God's word, we come together and allow God's word to pour over us so that we learn who he is. We learn what he's done. And we use that as the affectionate draw for each other. What happens? He says he uses that to transform us. Please note, he does not say the word of God personally in you as the effort that you put into it transforms you. He says the word of God poured over you corporately and then used to love each other transforms you. Look at Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. How is it that we grow up into Christ? From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Please notice the context. He does not say, when you read and pray and you are diligent on that, personally spending your personal Bible time, narcissistic, right? Narcissistic. No, he's saying, when you understand the value of the body of, the, of Christ and how it functions, and when the body functions properly... When the eyes are telling the feet what to do, right? When the ears are listening, when the mouth, when everything is functioning the way it's supposed to be functioning, then you grow. Then you grow. You build each other up in love. Paul did not say, well, I already mentioned that. This is why Paul starts this chapter with unity. So just go look at the first, let's look at verses two and three. Do you know what keeps people from, sorry, do you know what keeps people from working together? As I've already stated, individualism. So what does Paul say to prevent individualism? Or we would say spiritual narcissism. He says this, the book of verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Fascinating. So these commands, humility, which means I shouldn't be comparing myself with you. Gentleness, meaning when you're being obnoxious. Patient, when you're taking your time. Bearing with one another in love. Why should we do all of that? Because we are trying to maintain this unity that we have within the body. It's fascinating here, this word unity within the Greek. It has, it's, it's very intense. It actually even could be translated... Um, as, as to give one's best. So if we were to retranslate it, giving your best to maintain that unity. Why? Because the relationship is the most important relationship we have on this earth. Think about it. If God's design is that your encouragement, your joy, is in fellowship through the preaching public, uh, public of his word in a function of a body where your relationship is that you have a role that plays part in how other people grow, you do not want fractures. You do not want fighting. You don't want people who are not willing to be with each other. As a matter of fact, Jesus, right before he dies on the cross, he, pray, he prays out to the Father. Let me just read this to you. John seventeen twenty says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the word meaning you and I to come, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Well, that is, that is heavy. God, I'm praying that you unite my, my, my adopted children. I pray you unite them. And as you unite them and they find their identity in me, that the world around them looks at them and say, yes, Jesus Christ is real. Earlier in John 13, 35, it says this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you what? Show extreme effort. Through your dedication, he says, no, they will know if you have love for one another. Love for one another. First, and then later on, First John, the epistle, he says something pretty, pretty, pretty heavy. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Well, how is it we know that, John? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. The love we share has a massive impact not only on each other, but also those to the, the world that around us that observe it. In most church contexts, there is not enough time in a real relationship to create this type of a bond, this type of unity, this type of love. Because you and all of us know to have true, intimate relationships with people, you have to what? Spend time and be willing to be vulnerable. And most church contexts don't promote that. So how can you truly say, I love someone that you barely know? I have two brand new neighbors. And if I were to walk up on their door and go, man, I love you, they would probably pull out their shotgun and say, get off my property. They don't know who I am. What are you trying to sell me? Right? But we've all been in a relationship that is intimate and true. This person knows you because you've been willing to be vulnerable. You've experienced life together. You've seen the value in the relationship. And that's where it ends for the church is that most people don't see the value. Because I said before, their experience in church has been pain, criticism, legalism. It doesn't work. People fail me. It's a mess. I don't, want, I don't have time for other people's messes. So when you hear me speak about unity, you're like, yeah, that sounds utopian, John. Oh, trust me, Paul knows it's not utopian. You want to know why? This is why. You ever think about why he gives us the fruit of the Spirit? Now, we always equate the fruit of the Spirit with our actions and relationship to God. Paul never does that. Now, for those who've kind of been in the Lordship crowd, that's kind of the Spirit check fruit. Are you doing the fruits of the Spirit? If you're not, therefore, you're not a true Christian. That's not what Paul says. The purpose of the fruits of the Spirit are for the benefit of the church, not for personal assurance, but to keep unity. It makes sense to keep unity. Now, John has already told us that our love for each other is what brings us this assurance, and it brings the gospel ministry to people around us. But in Galatians 5.22, he says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Well, those all sound like, I mean, I'm sure you could try and be faithful to yourself and good to yourself and kind to yourself, sure. But he's writing to a church who is struggling with fighting with each other. Gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. He's saying all of this should be coming from love. It's not like, all right, let's see. Um, yeah, I've been self-controlled enough. Whoop, I'm good. No, 
I love you, so I'm going to control myself. And even in ways that I'm like, I don't think I should have to refrain from that, as Paul says. Sometimes we have to refrain from things because our brother that we love isn't quite ready for that. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Why do they do that? Because they want to maintain the unity. Fruits of the Spirit, thank God they're the fruits of the Spirit, because if they're fruits of our own abilities, <laughs> you and I would not ever want to step in foot in church. But all of these fruits are connected to our relationship with each other by the power of the Spirit. So Paul uses this as a similar list in Ephesians, as we've already read, of speaking of unity. We've run out of time. We're going to save the rest of this for next week. But I want to close by leading us to the benefits of this newfound relationship. So if your identity is, one, I'm owned by Christ, and I am not an only child, but I'm adopted into this family that he has designed. So this isn't the design of humanity. This is the design of God. God says, here's my family. You all have a part. I have gifted you. We're going to learn this from Ephesians next week. I have gifted you all with something different. If I were to ask some of you to come up here and preach, you would rather die. Right? That is not how God has gifted you. But if I have asked you to take a meal to someone and encourage them hurting, you're on it. You're on it. Why? Because that's just how the Spirit's gifted you. He has gifted all of us differently. And thank God. Paul says this in Corinthians. It's a good thing we're not all mouths or all ears. I mean, that would look funny. And it wouldn't work for a church. But here are the benefits for us. And this is why I'm hoping that you will change your perspective towards church. First, our unity with God's people provides a place of rest. That's not what most people experience when it comes to church. When everyone realizes that they have been bought with a price, that they are not in this family because of something they have done, but because they too have been adopted, that changes our status. We all come to the table sitting in the same locations, right? As beggars. So there is no one who's greater in the eyes of God. I don't care how long you've been a Christian or how much you have shared the gospel or how much you've read your Bible. You are a family member and your value to this body is the same as the next person. And that includes me. At the end of my life, God's not going to value me more than you because somehow he chose me to be the foolish speaker of this congregation. My value is the same as you. Why? Because I came into the family the same way you did. You did. And I have the same spirit you do. Which means my value is the same. So your value according to Christ is the same as the elders, deacons, pastors, Sunday school teachers. I don't care who you are. So when this body functions, every part of it properly, the Bible says we grow How fascinating is that? So that means you don't have to do everything. Think about it. If we were all to go to my house and build a barn, which is not a bad idea, and I would just said, you know what? All I want you guys to do is come and like enjoy it when I'm finished. It's going to take me forever to build that barn. But if we come have a good old-fashioned barn raising, it's going to grow up real fast. Why? Because everybody's doing their part. We don't think about that in our relationship to God. Church, we can rest knowing no one in here deserves to be in here. No one's better than anybody. God doesn't love you or respect you more than anybody else in the world. He's not a respecter of persons, of anyone. 
and that you actually matter. I don't care what your age is. If you are seven or 70, God does not look at your age and go, yep, you I can use, but no, you I cannot. Everybody has a part. So you rest in God's function for the church, not in our performance in the church. This also means when you stumble, and you will, the church is here to pick you up. And when you succeed, the church is there to rejoice. And when you suffer, the church is there to weep with you. Because if you're an only child, that means there's no one else to participate with, no siblings. But when you're a family, you rejoice as a family. I think the loneliest place on the planet for most people is when they walk into the doors of the most unsafe place, which is called the church. How terrifying is that? Here's the second benefit. You no longer have to pretend to be what you are not. Now that's, in our culture, it's very hard because we all pretend to be a lot of things that we're not. But my kids know when I'm not feeling good, when I'm struggling, or I'm not happy. Of course, my wife really knows when I'm not happy. Because they know me. They live with me. They're around me. They get the real me. The pain of coming home week after week, playing the game, can stop when you see your identity is adopted. You don't have to compare. Your spiritual growth is not in your effort, but in the love that you share. That's a place that you can come and say, I can be me, and they will accept me for who I am, not who I am not. So you're seated at the table of God where everyone else is equally seated. And you're not trying to jockey yourself to be something more than you're not. It's scary to think, but it's okay to be weak in the church. It's okay. As a matter of fact, you know what the most terrifying thing is a pastor? Most terrifying thing for me is what you think of me. And I'll tell you this, it's not the bad you think of me, because that's all true. It's the good you think of me. Whatever platform you've put me on, whatever level you've put me at, that terrifies me because I'm not that. I'm just not. I have no superpowers. (laughs) And dear God, I wish I did. For your sake and for mine, but I don't. I need to be seated at the table like you. As a matter of fact, we're not going to read it right now, but 1 Peter tells us, that I am to submit myself to you because I'm a sheep. We are to confess our sins. Oh my goodness, that's terrifying. Confess our sins to one another? But that's the command. Why would we ever do that? Because it's okay to admit when there's a problem if you know you're going to be met with the gospel and grace. So Paul says, confess it to one another. Find hope, find encouragement, find strength. It's not your accountability partner. Now buddy, don't do that again. Because then you just lie. So we find a place where we can be real, we can confess, we can be broken, we can be frail. Signs of lack of of weakness is not scary anymore. This is why God has supernaturally brought us together so that we could hold each other up underneath the umbrella of the gospel. So why do we every week stop and take time? Man, let's get ready. Why do we stop and every week take time to remind ourselves of the table? Because it's underneath that table that we all equally feast on Christ. And for no other reason. For no other reason. 
Last week we mentioned the table and baptism, and I want to mention that again. We, um, my, my greatest desire for this church is that in all that we experience in life, that this place becomes that one location, that one congregation, doesn't matter where we meet or what building, where you know that you take that deep breath. It's like when you walk home from vacation and you walk into your own bedroom, there's that moment of like, ah, why? Because you can kick your shoes off and your smelly socks and it doesn't matter. That's what I want for you to spiritually walk in and go, oh, okay, these are my people and I love them and I would do anything for them and I know without a doubt they do anything for me. But in order to do that, what do you have to be? Vulnerable, right? Father, thank you that when you adopted us, you did not leave the entire responsibility of growing and enjoying and resting and uh, persevering on our own strength. Lord, you've connected us to very gracious people who are just like us. Everyone is in the same place in the same amount of need of grace, Lord. And may we celebrate that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.